about quitting it's the combat of life hammering the snot out of you well stand by dig in deep and get ready to get fired up with us welcome to the team never quit podcast the number one podcast that inspires you to fight on i'm your host david rutt rutherford here with mr never quit himself marcus luttrell our mission is to help you embrace the suck of life to teach you the values of working your ass off and to interview the most hard-charging people on planet Earth. We know life is hard. It's time for you to suck it up, buttercup, and let us teach you to persevere in every environment imaginable by sharing real-world lessons learned by those who never quit. That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the well, negative insurgency up, in their you lives. You fire me up, Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. So when you when you think about these skills, man, and you think about our guests and a hundred deadly skills, he put them in this incredibly successful New York Times bestselling book. You know, he broke this down, and there's some pretty awesome stuff, man. Like in part one, right? Uh, create an everyday carry kit. Uh, build an improvised concealable holster. Right? Conceal your escape tools. I mean, this is some legit stuff, right? Uh, I tell you what, the only have you ever thought about that? Have you ever written down all your qual? I know our quals are on a on a piece of paper in our folder, but all me- of them in me- between. I never did that, but once when I was laying on that mountain by myself, I had to get back in there and tell <laughs> myself what I could actually do. That is to, cool. To get, I had to get ahead of myself before I even let out. Right. So now, I, what were the first things that popped? Because that, I mean, if there's there's not ever a time to have a skill set pop into your brain. Wh- which ones were the first one that came right to the forefront of your mind? So medical, yeah. I, you know, BSI seen it safe, and I did. And, a- and by the way, my my, you know, I spent all my time I had team one, so basically I have one qual, and that's eighteen delta. <laughs> that's <laughs> and one. three M and three M. Oh yeah, oh, that's first squeeze, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Hey, you want you want free fall or sniper? Yeah, yeah. All right, three M it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know all the ocean standards, <laughs> right? Um, so after I did an assess on myself, then it was clear, clear the environment. Then when I went through, uh, man, I went through the armory, I went through comms and everything. Then I had to do the whole crawl over, then the bouldering I had to get in and I'm a climber. I can do this. All right. And this just <clears throat> think about it. Like a small child has to crawl over those rocks where normally we would step up. That's, that's kind of where I took myself to. Wow. Yeah. It was one of those deals and, um, play hide and seek, you know, be quiet do all my sniper skills, but, but kids are extra. When, yeah. When you right. Really want to right totally. And just, I really had to go over my, um, Oh, back to scouts and land nav with the celestial, like what star and mountain ranges and do the resection. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it took me a while to remember how to do that. I kept getting that wrong. Uh, and, um, you know, which, which direction the limbs are growing out of the trees, the shadows, and then what I could and couldn't eat, you know, how fast I could go without pumping up my blood where I would bleed to death, you know, what to touch and not touch. And then um, the overall, just the attitude, I had to find that motive, that that spark, right, that motivation to keep moving. And as soon as the sun went down, it hit me because I just thought it was re- cause we don't see each other anyways. Yeah. Separated. And it's only about what fifteen, twenty feet, but it's so dark, and we don't move. So I, I never thought about 
the guys being dead. Couldn't do that. Because you know, every time I would, I'd turn around. Oh, really? Go, yeah, I'd go back. No man left behind. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> or I'd just sit there. I didn't want to leave. Right. Um, but they kept you know, coming and coming. So I, I, eventually what happened was I'd move a little bit, and then I had to move a little bit more because they started moving on top, on top of me. Right. I couldn't go back. Wow. Were they – did you ever get a sense like they had – they had certain skill sets too, like they knew how to track you. They and they knew what to look for. I mean, it is their backyard. It is, and that's what you can't. When you say that, I mean, they mean it. And I, their entire country is their backyard. Yeah. You know, they they move around, and the problem was well, you couldn't express enough. Like, hey, if you think we would be in the best hide on the side of a mountain where no one can get, and we take this one rock and move it over for, but that just happened to be that dude's seat, right? It had been his great, 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 great grandfather's, you know, that's where he went to the toilet or something, right? Yeah. And he comes up there on, he's like, hey, it's gone. I mean, something obviously moved it. And they're, I mean, those guys, they're, they're great mountaineers. They're great gunfighters. Any and all of the survivalist tracking, they got on my, trail pretty hardcore in, in the morning i think in my blood trail they found it yeah at night you know i i because i had to get rid of all my lights and all that most of them fell off of me including right. my strobe but i didn't even know that and i remember i took my uh my wire from my invisio that that had snapped in half so i yeah. took that and ran it through my ir kim lights and <laughs> I made the mistake of busting off. I really want them to find me. Yeah, right? you did. Like, <laughs> I took my peck off my rifle and hit that and then hit that strobe. And I had, every time I would hear uh, a rotor or an engine, I'd re <laughs> try to look at man, dude. Yeah. I was, I was busting like a maniac. But then they would fly out. And I did, I found this out later. I didn't know that. But they would actually, they saw it, right? But there was also some IR hits going. There was all kinds of uh, false. They were, they were, well, because uh, they had gotten Danny's yeah, stuff. They were and trapping, like, yeah, baiting and trapping. Yeah. And um, by the time they got to me, I'd already moved. So they actually came in with the, the litter a couple times, what I was told. Oh, I they, oh, I do that because when they when I went in for my debrief, when I first got back, they started asking me where everybody, what, kind of how it went down. They had it mapped out. That's how I knew the distance I had traveled. And right. I was like, man, I, I made a wrong turn in <laughs> Kentucky. <laughs> but, uh, but I was like, no, man, we're not here. We're way over here. You know, I, I made it over here by happenstance. Right. But what I love about it is that you created each little mission over and over and over. And, and survival, everybody that talks about survival or you know, being in a difficult, a never, real never quit situation. It's about keeping your wits, right? And, sure. and staying focused in the 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 nanosecond. Yeah, man, it's kind of boiled back down to, uh, in Buzz, it was chow, right? And I'll make it through this evolution or whatever it was. I guess it's kind of hard to put it in perspective, but you can get to a place where the mission for the day is to get five feet, right? In cyber school, you, you lay there and you're kind of inch along, but when you... <laughs> Uh, I'm glad we practiced that because when you're hurt, that's as far as you can go. And I'm like, all right, I'll make it right over there. I'm not going to make any noise. I mean, you all that stuff, your senses are so heightened when someone's trying to kill you 24-7. You're like, uh. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that, that I would make so much racket. Luckily, I didn't have any gear left. I mean, like I like to say, man, I, you know, I started that fight with all my kit, and by the time it was over, I was naked. You know, I whipped yeah. my ass till I was naked. I don't know if you ever had that happen to you, bro, <laughs> no. but it's a good one. Holy cow. Right? So when I would fall, I didn't have any much to rattle around. I, I wouldn't make any much noise, just skin over terrain kind of deal. But until I would do one of those big falls. There's only a couple of them in, in that second day. One of them into the river, and 
I was trying to yell, but my, I had all that maxwell face. And your tongue was gone. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I flipped into that water, uh, they told me that uh, sorrow was, was like, man, I would, <laughs> you know, you'd, and they would laugh. They thought that was funny. That was one of the stories I would tell, or they would tell when somebody new would come in, like, oh, yeah, Dr. Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would flip and yeah. that rapport. Yeah. And, and that ultimately came the most important part of your survival is those little micro uh, adjustments with the relationships of Gulab and everybody in that, in that, in that village, man. Sure. I mean, I. Uh, <laughs> I'm lucky in that. I don't have any special skills, but, but all it takes for about 30 minutes for me to be with you, and you'll feel like family. No, <laughs> no, you do do that, brother. <laughs> so imagine that situation. I was like, come on in here. <laughs> you know, and once I figured out the hierarchy, like I would always try and stand up when the, uh, the old man would come in. And uh, just, he, you know, he, he all, eventually got upset about it. He's like, ah. he used to always do that. He'd play with his beard, you know, he'd just sit back, got a deal, and he's like, ah. <laughs> 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 I'd say something, and he'd be, and he'd, and if, for those of you, I know you can't see me, but he'd like, he'd wave his hand up in a gesture and be like, oh, don't worry, like, don't even worry about that. Yeah. I got it. I got it. I love it, man. Well, I, I got to tell you, every time that, you know, you share with us about it, man, it just, it makes me smile at your never quit mindset. And, Man, if this is your first time joining us on the TNQ podcast, man, have we got a doozy in store for you. One of our brothers, Clint Emerson, is coming on here in just a minute. We just had my co-host, the, the Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell, just share with you some amazing insight just in that few minutes, bro. Uh, this show is just going to be incredible. If you're a repeat offender, Man, God bless you. Welcome back. We're so happy to have you back, the Wizard and I and Marcus. And and I tell you, it, it really is just such a, a privilege, uh, just how much support we're getting from all y'all. It, it's just, I mean, it's crazy, right? Just to be able to do this for, for a, not even for a job, just to be able to do this. The fact that we have the guests that we have and, and the list and the teammates that we do now, right? It's just, it's just unbelievable. It, it truly is the... Man, it's it's the best life. Being in teams and that whole team environment was great. This is this is spectacular. It's certainly oh. grown into something much larger than ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, if you want to know more about what it is we do and listen to the shows, just visit our podcast at tnqpodcast.com, uh, where you can find all our shows. You can find uh, our the most important part of our our website, which is our listener write in stories. We've uh, we've collected this incredible catalog of great never quit stories from our listeners around the world. These things are so beneficial; they're so amazing. We just can't thank everyone that's had the courage to write in and contribute th to really begin building out that that team within Team Never Quit. Thank you so much. You can find us also on every place you can find podcasts that's apple podcasts itunes Castbox, stitcher and every other platform out there on any other mobile device all right if you want to follow us uh it's on instagram the show is at tnq podcast the team is at team never quit at marcus luttrell at the wizard tnq and i'm at team frog logic all right wizard why don't you give us a rundown on clint's background all right, Clint. Clint is a super interesting guy. In fact, I wish there was a Clint out there back when I started my career, you know, over 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. But anyways, he is a former Navy SEAL. He is currently an advisor and entrepreneur. He has founded Violent Nomad, 100 de Deadly Skills, and a company called Escape the Wolf. We'll explain a little bit about that in the future. Now, 
Clinton generally avoids, uh, from at least from what I've seen, talking in detail or even vague detail about his career in the teams, which, um, which is something that I can appreciate and respect. But here's what we can say is he, has, he had 20 years of experience within the special operations community. A portion of that was with a special missions unit where specialized skills were developed and implemented in support of U.S. government operations, which required various physical and technical surveillance skills in semi-pervasive and denied areas throughout the world. He is also a graduate of American Military University in Virginia with a BA in security management. Now, three main projects um, that he's involved with, founded, runs these, which kind of encompass a lot of uh, who Clint is as far as um, to the public these days. The first one is, as Dave mentioned before, 100, 100 Deadly Skills. Primarily, those are two books, The 100 Deadly Skills, A SEAL Operative's Guide, with some of the some very interesting skills in there covering everything from concealing gear caches to uh, running discreet, loose surveillance, shooting from a vehicle, using a pen as a weapon, all sorts of very practical, uh, it's a detailed guide to these skills. And then recently, more recently, there is the edition, the survival edition, which is the SEAL Operative's Guide to Surviving in the Wild and Being Prepared for Any Disaster. In addition to that... Uh, 100 Deadly Skills has a YouTube channel that goes over a lot of this in video format. Moving on from there, he has Escape the Wolf, which is a company which provides preemptive, holistic safety solutions for employees. And then last but certainly not least, uh, it's Violent Nomad, the company whose tagline is Outwit, Outmove, Outplan, and Outlive. It is a gear and apparel brand. Um, as far as gear, they sell things like urban, everyday carry survival kits, as well as rural. They have a medical uh, March kit, they sell block picking sets, a discreet stabbing tool, and they have a line called Zero Trace, which uh, helps protect your electronic devices. So across these three, I think you have a pretty good picture of you know what Clint is into, uh, what he, he teaches, uh, develops, and um, it says a lot about uh, perhaps what we're going to hear from him. All right, what do you say? Let's get him on. So Marcus, let me tell you what, brother. When you get out there and you start to look for people from our community, right, and you start scanning the interwebs and you start, you know, looking for YouTube videos or following people on social media, there's a few of us that kind of always are are lingering. But there's one in particular that stands out in a way that I think is really, really unique, a person that has has taken their skill sets, has taken their experience and really transformed it into a, a, a powerful teaching component, a way for people to uh, address fear in a more palpable way, to uh, address the challenges of the external world in a, with a sophistication and a temperament that gives them the greatest capacity for success. And I'm telling you what, it's our brother here about ready to come on. Oh, yeah. I'm fired up about this one, man. It's going to be good. <clears throat> well, the crazy aspect of it, and I talked a little bit about it before, is that, you know, we have been 
mirroring each other, not mirroring, but we have skirted each other's existence through a mutual friend of ours, this guy, Jan the Man Lemon, the purveyor of cosmic synergy. And and we've known each other, we've known <laughs> of each title. other yeah, for so years cool. His now. His name is actually <laughs> the man. Yeah, Jan the, the Man Lennon, right? <laughs> Anybody who, who names their child after the great John Lennon, right, and it has that musical virtuoso capability, right, has, is tapped into something. But we never met clint and i never met so the opportunity to finally get him on with us to to share his story bro i'm telling you i'm super fired up today. let's do it all right let's do it so here we go ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages welcome to the team never quit podcast mr clint emerson sir thank you for coming on with us wow that's quite the uh, intro. I think uh, my penis has turned into a belly button. I don't really know what to say right now. But I'm, <laughs> I don't I'm even know what that here. means. That was the first <laughs> response like that we've heard. Uh, <laughs> mine's like that all the time. No, but, uh, <laughs> Did I tell you you had, we had no idea what we were going to get here? I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, listen, that was Clint. a little intimidating, Dave, but I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Because I knew I'd get a comment like the, for my penis turned into a belly button. You can't, you can't, yeah. you can't gauge that on most other human beings that that's what the <laughs> power of your first response. Yeah, but from now on, when I'm standing next to somebody, I'm like, oh, right now, you know what's happening to that dude? <laughs> going to a belly button. He's got, He's got two got, belly yeah, buttons. Two uh, uh, belly. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. Now. Before we get going and really go down these rabbit holes, because you got to get a strong suspicion we'll be in some good deep yeah, rabbit yesterday holes. Yesterday was about titties. <laughs> oh, my God. That's with double D. With a yeah, double D titties. D's. <laughs> Clint, do D's. You, are you aware of the old flip-flop uh, footwear that used to be called T-I-D-D-I-E-S, titties? I'm not sure I'm not fully read in on that, though. Yeah, a uh, uh, the first kind of pair of flip-flops that had the tubing on it that went around behind your ankle. So after the flip-flops came online, these came, I guess it was in the 80s. We looked it up yesterday, and it had that rubber surgical tubing tied together. over, So it went over your toe and then behind your ankle, and it was called titties, D-I-D-D-I-E-S. <laughs> I think I may have missed that. I grew up overseas, so I missed a lot of things that were the norm here in the States, so, you know, and then uh, – yeah, I missed a lot of stuff in in my childhood. So, I eat the violent <laughs> nomad. <laughs> <laughs> I eat the violent nomad. All right. No, All right. I'm going to have to right. send him a pair. <laughs> oh, wait. You know, we got to first get sponsored by him first. All right. All right. Well, before we jump into, you know, the real heavy conversations about nomadic life and titties, we have to talk about, we have to get limbered up. We have to get loosened up. And the way we're going to do that is through the Mad Minute. Now, now, this is not the traditional Mad Minute that you're probably aware of, that you learned with your former employees whatsoever. But this is the new kind of Mad Minute. This is the Mad Minute that allows us to move into a whole different realm of understanding of one another. So are you prepared to begin, sir? I'm ready. All I'm right. Ready. Marcus, fire away. All right. Favorite quote. Ooh. Favorite quote. That's a good one, man. That is a, a good bunch one. Of them. You know, the, the, the most recent one, and you guys, I'm sure we're all, we're all rolling down this path in life to achieve, which I like it. It's the, uh, 
rich men have money, wealthy men have time. And I don't know mm. who quoted that, but it's certainly, I think, uh, when you talk about finances and monetary stuff, it's a great one to achieve or at least strive for. Good one. Yeah, that, that's poignant for sure. All right, number two. <clears throat> this is a perfect question for you. Um, when, not if, a zombie apocalypse hits, what are your three top most indispensable pieces of kit? It's going to be anything from a nuclear weapon to a toothpick. Yeah, it's a condom, uh, tampon, <laughs> and some Advil. <laughs> True team guy response. True team guy response. Easy to carry. Yeah, you, you can actually yeah. put two of those water, in water one of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> waterproof <laughs> tampon. Tampon. Yeah, you got to keep the tampon. You got to plug bullet holes and uh, bleeders. Uh, you need need a way to waterproof things. That's condoms are perfect for that, unless they have a hole, and we know how that goes. <laughs> and then of course Advil. I mean, I get migraines all the time, so that's kind of a that's kind of a thing I have to take. A, that's that's something I have all the time. That's a life saving piece of equipment. That's right there. He's Did you ever imagine that after twenty years at the highest level of serving this country, that Advil would be your greatest life saving device? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess I probably could have given you some more sophisticated. No, answers, no, no. But, but the, the thing about well, the condom, well, team guys trapped on a phone, right? Right. The, yeah. the condom thing and the tampon that. Eighteen, you know, we're going through eighteen Delta. They give us all this cool hardware and everything like that. But the best tricks I ever learned were the two that he just threw down. To, oh yeah, the waterproof and to stop water from flowing. Plug a boat with that thing, man. Yeah. Was, absolutely. That's uh, <laughs> funny the way in the, in the, what they represent really in real life. But that's an absolute seriousness, man. They, that, they, they that's were. how you know a real operator when you go into their sleeve patches and they've got a, a box of condoms and tampons. Well, that, that's how you know a dude is hard, <laughs> right? Uh, all right. All right. Next question. Here we go. Okay. If you could go back in history to any time at any period and participate in some great revolution, which one would it be? Jesus. You know, I, I, I'd have to go with like, I would, on a serious note, I'd love to experience, you know, uh, the irreplaceable generation of World War II. Uh, I, I love like the, the stories of like old school Jedburgh teams and um, any of your Normandy guys. I mean, I think, it's not necessarily revolutionary, but it's definitely uh, a group of guys that, you know, zero technology, their weapon, and they, they fought like, like no one has ever been able to duplicate or fight like that ever since. You know, we've, we've had the advantage of technology and all kinds of cool stuff um, from mm -hmm. the sea and, a, and, and, of course, up in the sky and up in space that has supported us, but you know, those dudes were just kind of just putting it out there and fighting truly for something they believed in. And, uh, I would love to go back and hang out with those dudes for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, amen. There are not many of them left. So I, they, they, they truly are. There's something else, man. Yeah. This summer is, you know, the 75th anniversary of Normandy. And it, a lot of people are saying this is the real last time all those guys are going to kind of be together in one location, you know, in, in, in to represent that, those moments in history, dude, it's a, it's a, it's a dying breed for oh, sure. Yeah. All right, Marcus. Yeah. All right, brother, what, was, what was your most embarrassing yeah. moment from high school? 
high school? Well, let's see. I had a bunch of them because, as I mentioned before, I grew up in, in Saudi Arabia from the second grade to high school. So I came back to the States. <laughs> wow. <laughs> not, I mean, you know, I came, not, not just came back to the States. I came back to a suburb outside of Dallas called Plano. And it's a very affluent, oh, yeah. <laughs> spoiled brat kind of place, right? And here's here's uh, here's this kid showing up with camouflage pants and a button-up, you know, Hawaiian shirt that had bananas all over it, you know, for <laughs> the first day of school. And uh, and I'm surrounded by kids wearing Z Cavaricis and some other shit I've never heard of in my, before in my life. And uh, <laughs> of course, you know, <laughs> I had I, Z uh, Cavaricis, man. Those are good. <laughs> yeah, they had the big like flap over the yeah. front, and you could buckle it. And different, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Oh man, I nine hundred bell I loops. More of a, <laughs> yeah, all that artistic. You know, uh, I don't know what else. I can't even remember the other brands, but I sure as hell wasn't fitting in. And the first day of school was a traumatic moment because I uh, I felt the eyeballs and felt everybody looking at me, and uh, and I knew I was not like the others. Uh, and I uh, <laughs> I didn't really adapt. It took me a while to adapt to that. So yeah, that was probably that was probably the first one of many. What, what I want to know, what I want to know is how are you already wearing the Mark one motto team guy uniform off work as a kid going into <laughs> yeah, high school? How did you get awesome, that, that yeah. profound influence? Had I found that back then, yeah. I would have been in heaven. Parents would have been happy too. Yeah, I know. Not was... that much, right? Hawaiian shirt, board shorts, flip-flops. <laughs> no candy yeah, pants. Pretty, that was pretty much uniform of the day overseas we were kind of like you know about three or four years always behind growing up in that country because it's you know it's a closed country they don't allow shit in there you know western culture or anything so you just kind of left on your own to figure it out <clears throat> wow all right give us one indication that western society may soon implode and conversely an encouraging sign that it will grow and prosper <laughs> oh my god Certainly weighs into that. This is all recorded. It's going to be in there in the cyber world for life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nobody listens to our show, though, Clint. Don't worry, bud. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at current times, <laughs> that it's going to implode. I'd love to be mm -hmm. just kind of very unpolitically, you know, correct here. But, uh, is that possible? Um, you know, when you have. You know, I am, I am, I hate to get into politics, but I, I'm pretty much, I remain in like Trump neutral. So, you know, in, the, in that, in that gear order, right, there's drive and there's reverse. I just stay in neutral with that guy, but I, I, I certainly feel like there were times when that guy could definitely bring things uh, all falling down. And then there's times when I'm like, you know, there's some of his genius isn't shown. I'm not saying he is a genius, but there are times when it's no one's concentrating on it, like standing toe to toe against China or, you know, some of the good things he's done economically, but it gets covered up by his own big mouth. So there are moments in time where I'm like, Oh my God, this guy's going to just single handedly, like, you know, bring things down, but he could also single handedly bring things up. So that's where that neutral term comes from. And hmm. uh, he usually buries all his good deeds in his constant rhetoric as we've seen on Twitter. But you know, I, that's, that's, uh, that politically, I think that's where a lot of people sit there and wonder each day, like, what the hell is he going to do next kind of thing? And, and not realizing how something can, um, 
uh, help and just how it can hurt, you know, me coming from a, uh, a world where, you know, the last part of my career was somewhat, you know, kind of like in the clandestine covert stuff, you, you, you and the covert world rely on the overt political relationships that are built on the surface. And for, for organizations that work in that dark world rely on the good relationships between world leaders, because let's face it, we're all in the, in the clan world. You're all working together uh, to achieve the same thing. And you'll never know about it on the outside. Mm-hmm. And so you, you need the Brits, you need the Germans, we need all these people. And so from my optic, you know, working in that realm, it's important for the presidents to get along with all of the people that we do rely on um, to do uh, a lot of things that you just never get to hear about or see. It's all good, but we need that relationship up top that's so vert uh, to be solid and uh, so that we can still do the things we want to do around the globe. Well, there you have it. Well, that, that's a much broader topic for sure, but the brilliant answer, you answered both ends of that with the same, the same answer. So what do you got, Dave? Uh, so my question is even more deep and powerful than that one. What I want to know is what was, your, what was your best living environment as a new guy in the teams? What, describe that living arrangement, the, the most fun, the most palpable the most is the one that you remember as like when life was perfect marcus and i talk about that 27 to 31 that first platoon that was that was the greatest time and living environment oh yeah um god there's a bunch of them i I think i if i had to go the earliest one i'd have to default to 18 delta short course we were the last course in san antonio oh you made that one I heard about oh, that. Man, I joined with, because with, it was in San Antonio. <laughs> so guess which class I was? <laughs> the next yeah, one. Yeah, they moved it on to Fort Bragg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – and, 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 and we weren't living at, you know, on Fort Sam Houston. Everyone had to get apartments and stuff, and this was right out of Bud's. And, uh, and so there were probably – five or six of us in one little apartment, you know, yes. and uh, we've all been there, but the difference was, is it was just such a combination of dudes. I'd love to say all their names because you, you guys have all known them or heard of them, but, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, sh- sometimes sharing beds. You just never knew what was going to happen each day <laughs> or night. Um, and you'd wake up each day with something new in the living room, something unique. <laughs> uh, maybe it could be That's somebody new. or something sticky. I mean, you just never knew. So, I mean, but it was. Uh, and then, then on top of that, you know, you you couple it with all that medical training and medical gear. I remember coming home one day and a guy passed out on the kitchen table with an IV hanging out of his arm in a pool of blood. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, you know, I immediately go over and shake him and wake him up, you know, because he was just trying to hydrate in some drunk stupor and uh, <laughs> passed out in the middle of the process and, you know, had a basically an open line running all back, over the place. Back but, flowing uh, into the, the backflow, the backflow yep. days, yeah. the backflow. Yep. Yeah. And I, and you, you know, of course, you're like, you know, at the beginning of learning all that medicine, you, you, uh, you're a little more hypersensitive to, uh, you know, to what could go wrong, you know, in that in that particular situation, of course. But anyway, I mean, it just, 
every day, every night with something different. There's moments where you're like, what the fuck am I doing here? And then other times you're like, man, this is the greatest place on earth. <laughs> oh yeah, man. It would hit you both sides. Like how about, how about, and it's funny. You're right. Cause in the beginning you, you what you think is a devastating medical injury has nothing to do with keeping this dude alive. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, Man, I walked out of my door one day, bro, and one of my PJ buddies was passed out in the breezeway. And he had his uh, Ranger panties on, PJ panties on, yeah. and he had an IV in his staff. And there was Corona bottles empty laying around him, and he was laid on in the breezeway like in a running position. And the bag, the and the line was uh, it had backfilled and dried up. Passed <laughs> 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 out there with a thousand cc empty bag of his blood. Now full of just. I mean, every day was something yeah. different, man. And when you're living with those guys, because everyone's doing something different, and you have this house, and it is, it's like first one home gets the cool chair, you get the bed <laughs> that night, and then in the morning, there's like nine cars outside, and it's yeah. a rush to see who get in the, in the one that actually make it all the way to work. It's so much fun. Oh, I had the oh, best yeah. of both worlds. I got to do, you know, short course and brag, but my refresher in San Antonio, and I'd much rather pick San Antonio oh, for yeah. sure. It was, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Marcus. Yeah. Fire away, bud. All right, brother. If if money wasn't an object, if it didn't exist, or all jo jobs paid the same, we can go that route, what would you be doing? Ooh. You know, I am. Um... Jeez. That's a good question. I probably would have just continued doing what I was doing, to be honest with you. I mean, there's a, there a couple of factors. You know, I think for me, I, I it was once you get to the 21-year mark, it, I was like, all right. You know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to reevaluate my priorities and make my daughter um, number one. So it's, it's difficult to, when you talk about jobs, like, no, you know, if money was an option, being a dad is, uh, is, is definitely yeah. cool for me. Um, and it's, uh, but at the same time, when you're asking a job, so that pays something, but everybody makes the same, and I, you know, sticking with, um, you know, what I was doing, definitely, uh, I, I didn't have any complaints, man. It was, uh, it was an awesome, it was an awesome way to go. And I probably would have stuck with it, but, you know, my little girl came uh, you know, came first. So as soon as I hit that 20, 21 year mark, I was like, all right, it's time to go and, uh, dedicate my spare time to her. That's awesome. actually get a job. I, I feel the same way, man. I, when we're in, I never checked my bank account, right? Just, we were always running around yeah. and usually paid for, or we always found a way to have a good time. But then when you have the kids yeah. being the dad is the greatest job ever. And you're like, all right, now I actually have to get a job and pay attention because I got to <laughs> <So, laughs> totally. I'm, all right, would you would you rather be hogtied and locked in a closet for 30 minutes with A, five water moccasins, or B, a chimpanzee with a hand grenade and a hyperactive sense of curiosity? <laughs> I'll take the water moccasins. <laughs> and why? Chimpanzees are some of the homeless freaking animals on the planet, and I really don't feel like uh, getting the uh, salami slivered into any... Uh, any of my orifices. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll take, them. I'll take the snakes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Somebody else said that recently <laughs> about getting raped by the chin. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving on. All right, Marcus, last question. All right, bro, favorite superhero? Oh, uh, I'd have to go with Superman. Nice. Yeah, he's an alien. I like aliens. 
No one's ever said that. Yeah, no one's ever said that. unique one. Have you seen the Batman <laughs> Superman parody? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it's great. He, he goes, like, what's that S on your chest? It stands for hope. He's like, hope starts with an H, you stupid. <laughs> you never seen that? Oh, dude, it's so awesome. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Batman versus Superman. Those two guys, they, I mean, they look just like the characters playing man, and he, Batman starts laying in him, dude. Oh, is that on you? Is it YouTube, <laughs> YouTube or something? I got to yeah. check that out. That's awesome. Well, Clint, thank what you. Is, what is the most popular? What is the most popular answer? Is it like Batwoman or something? Probably yeah. Batman. Oh, that goes across the board, man. Yeah. Uh, Deadpool. Last, Deadpool. Wow. Last couple. We love you, Ryan. Yeah, Reynolds. yeah Ryan Reynolds. Uh, one Deadpool, yeah. said uh, Mom came out. Yeah, we've was, had two moms. Two moms, and, and then uh, but most everybody goes same same route: Superman, Spider Man, Batman, Thor, Deadpool. Yeah. Iron Man. We've had yeah, a bunch yeah. of Iron Mans. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Now, every now and then, someone will go to some. Cool you know, outlier of like that. Nobody's heard, you know, yeah, morph. Somebody said yeah, morph. morph right? Yeah. All right. Well, we well, try, we walk into nerdville from time to time on superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> well, Clint, thank you so much for your contribution to, uh, our mad 18 minutes. We appreciate that very much. But the reason why people awesome. come to the show is not for our, absurdity although some people do but most people are coming here we believe because they're in the midst of their never quit moment they're in the struggle they're in the battle and so they want to to keep coming back because they want to hear something that's going to inspire them to fight on to to accept their reality and to stay in the fight regardless of the pain they feel i.e the never quit mindset so, without further ado, would you please share with our listeners your greatest never quit story or stories? All right. Hopefully I can live up to this. Uh, you know, there's, um, I thought about it when I got your initial email and I tried to go way back. You know, I think for a lot of guys, maybe they, I don't know, if they're upper seal specifically, they see buds and they give a bud story or something. But for me, it probably started overseas. I was, uh, 12 years old, I just, that was the youngest that you can get your um, Maui Patty Open Water One scuba certification. Mm-hmm. And so I just completed it. I, all the dives I had done had been part of the dive class. And my assistant, so the other thing, you know, Saudi is a very boring place to live when you're a kid. There's not a lot to do. Um, you live on these little American compounds. They try to emulate, you know, a miniature American city with, you know, green grass, palm trees, Olympic pools, all this and that. But the reality is there's still not a lot to do. And um, so there was, there was, you know, some diving related stuff and then there was, you know, scouting and that's about it. Um, so my assistant troop leader, troop master, um, he was probably 30, 40 years old. And he was scuba qualified. So my first dive was, you know, going with him. And, uh, so we went to Korea beach, which is a beach along the Persian Gulf. And we get there, we get all our gear set up. Um, and there's a pier where you go out to the end and basically, you know, you jump in, uh, you go down to, uh, you know, the ocean floor and right at the end of the pier, it's only like maybe, you know, 16 to 20 feet down and there's a line. 
and you grab that line and you follow it and it takes you about a quarter mile out to uh, what's called Tire Reef and it's a it's a man-made reef of nothing but huge rubber tires that mm. um, come off of these big excavation vehicles used out in the desert. We're talking tires that are, you know, 15, 20 feet tall. Wow. And then wow. there's, you know, then there's your normal size tires and, and there's hundreds of them that make up this this tire playground, if you will. Um, that's it. Yeah, I think it's probably like 30, 40 feet, give or take. I don't remember. But um, enough where you could go 60 for 60 easily. You know, it's not a, an issue. Um, so we get our gear set up. We go out to the end of that pier. And when we show up, the first thing is it was the largest swarm of fucking jellyfish mm. sitting there at the end of the pier and I'm kind of like, Oh, well this day's over. And he's like, Hey, so instead of, you know, just jumping in and giving me the, okay, uh, we're just going to, you know, just jump straight in, go straight to the bottom, just sink right through it. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, you won't, no, it's not going to be a big deal. And I'm like, uh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, you hold your mask, you hold your shit, you know, and you take the big step off and, you know, sink to the bottom. Well, you know, obviously, we know what's in the water when there's jellyfish. It doesn't matter whether you touch them or not. That water was just full of their little micro-poisonous, you know, Klingons that uh, can drive you nuts. Um, mm -hmm. So we end up going through it. And for the, and for the fear factor, that's, that was kind of like the beginning. You know, being a 12-year-old and jumping into a swarm of jellyfish wasn't exactly something I, wow. I wanted to do, but I rolled with it. Um, just for, you know, just to keep the day rolling. And plus I probably a little bit was ego driven, you know, having this guy with me that drove me all the way out there and felt like we just needed to do it. So jump through the jellyfish, get down to the bottom. I'm already itching, stinging, you know, around my mask, any bare skin, um, already uncomfortable. And we get, he, he, he kind of, he's down, we're down at the bottom. Um, it's a pretty sunny day. So you you could see what was going on and he wrestles up the line and he makes sure I'm good. I get behind him, start kicking away and pulling along that line. Eventually we end up at the, uh, um, this, this big tire reef and, uh, we get there and we get to one of the, one of the tires. Well, there's several of them that are standing upright, you know, and they look huge when you're underwater. And so we get up underneath the tire and there's natural, um, like bubbles that have formed from all the divers, I guess, that have come and gone where they fill up the, you know, that cavity inside of a tire with a big bubble. And then you break the surface, pull your mask off and you can talk to each other. So you just fill it up with a bunch of air from your regulator. So we pop up and kind of check the box on that cool little thing to do. And we say, Hey, Hey, and then we go back down and um, before you know it, I'm kind of on my own. He's on his own every now and then I could see him. He could see me. I pull out the hot dogs and, you know, got tons of angelfish and all these things surrounding me, eating these hot dogs out of my hand. And once I'm kind of done with this whole surreal moment of having all these fish around me to include those big ass hamors. I don't know if you guys remember those things, oh, yeah. but in the Gulf, they have hamors, which are those big groupers. They're like the size of a a VW bug with big old scary eyes and they're black, just wow. black. And they, they look oh. intimidating and they do not move out of your way. Um, and so I, I'm getting distracted by all that. And then I look around and I don't see him anymore. I'm looking like, where the fuck did this dude go? And so I, I'm thinking, oh, he might be behind a tire around a corner or whatever. So I'm, I'm kind of cruising and down at ground level. 
and, uh, you know, an ocean floor searching, you know, for him. I'm looking for bubbles. I don't see bubbles anywhere. Um, and then I, uh, then I decide to kind of get up above the tire reef. So I, I ascend up a little bit and then I start looking down and I can't, I'm just trying to get a better optic and I can't see shit. I can't see him. That was for sure. Now all of a sudden I'm getting like really nervous. So <clears throat> I start cruising around the tire reef looking for that line and I can't find it. So now I'm, you know, completely disoriented, have no clue where the hell that line went and to, so I could get myself back to shore. Um, and as you guys know, it's like, you can, you can, you can, the options at the time, I was like, oh, I could surface, but I remember my, the guy doing my dive course telling me about surfacing and, you know, and then look back down and not be able to go back to where you were, right? You, mm-hmm. The currents, tides, whatever, everything, it's totally different. You take that moment to surface, then if you decide to go back down to join up with a party or a dive buddy, you will not find them. You know, no matter how big a reef is, sometimes the ocean, it can turn into a needle in a haystack situation. Rapidly. Um, trying to find what, what, was, what was below isn't there anymore all of a sudden, you know? Yep. And especially as a kid, um, I felt like, holy crap. And I'm looking at my, I'm looking at, I, I still had a little bit of air left. So I kept searching both for him and the line and, uh, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And, um, finally I just made it like a command decision to, uh, surface, um, and just find shore, um, and kind of get my way, get my way back, hopefully. So I, you know, go up, um, break the surface, look around. Initially, I couldn't even see land. I got, that's how, you know, wow. how far out this thing was. And it was that point where you had to kick, you know, you could kick super hard in the first direction. I kicked really high to get my chest out of the water, just to, just to increase my elevation enough, just so I could see land and the directions, the first like three or four directions I looked, I couldn't see anything. And then, you know, you, the panic kicked in, right? And you start, then I flip around and it's just a matter of getting that bearing, looking in the right direction. So it took a deep breath. It was like, all right, just hold on a second. You didn't go that far. Kicked again and just, just slowed my rotation around. And while I was kicking to get, get out of the water and, and then finally I see land and I decided to surface swim it. I looked down again, looking for my buddy, nothing. Um, the tire reef looked tiny even though it was so big when we were down there. And then, uh, you know, I decided to surface swim in and you guys know, and it, it's a, it's, um, the Gulf is predominantly kind of, um, rough. It's yeah. high winds all the time. And, um, so, you know, keeping your eye on land just became the priority. Uh, I came up on shore, uh, and, you know, it was just, I remember that moment of just relief, like, you know, <laughs> and, and you feel every little thing too, taking your fins off, rolling around the surf zone, feeling like an idiot, the weight of the tank on your back, how everything was so big on me. Cause I was just a skinny little kid wearing all this almost adult like stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, then finally seeing this dude and he was, uh, he was sitting on the bench working on his stuff like nothing had ever happened. I approach him. I'm like, Hey, what, what happened? He's like, Oh, Hey, what's up, man. And then that was kind of it. And it was kind of this indicator of like, wow. the, you know, just cause they're an adult doesn't necessarily mean they're responsible. Um, but the fear that sat in through that entire 
piece. Everything from the jellyfish kicking it off to the end of getting to shore and rolling around that surf zone until I got up to the beach and then could see him. That whole time, I like, you know, it was just nothing but sheer fear and panic of not knowing really what to do. You know, you can, you, you, uh, you got procedures in your mind that you're taught and all the things that you're, you know, you're given and the tools that you have. And, and then you still feel like that's not enough. And, uh, it was, um, for a kid and for that moment, um, probably the, probably the scariest thing I'd ever gone through. Uh, even though when you break it down incrementally as an adult, it's like, Oh, each piece of that really isn't all that big a deal, especially after a career, you know, in the water. (laughs) But, um, I think that was, I don't know if that kind of feels some of it like story wise, but for me, that was, uh, probably the first time, um, you know, underwater to kick into surface swimming, getting back to shore where it was like, just keep going. Um, don't, don't let yourself, don't let the fear, don't let that panic get control of you. Cause it certainly was. I mean, I remember I started breathing down my air on that tank really fast. Um, as soon as I you couldn't get my bearings, as soon as I couldn't find my buddy and, um, and then having to go to the surface, I felt like, Oh shit. I'm like, potentially leaving a guy behind that may be under distress down there. That's, that was all that ran through my mind is this dude is trapped inside a fucking tire and I can't find him. And, uh, during that search phase and looking in all these tires and trying to figure it out, not seeing bubbles, you know, was definitely an indicator of something bad. Um, but all of that combined just was like, all right, just stick to, you know, use your brain. Don't go with the adrenaline. Don't, roll with the fear don't roll with all of that and uh try to remain calm and just procedurally go through a little your checklist that you know you're supposed to do and uh and then at the end of the day you know survive and get back to shore was really the goal so i think that was my first uh no quit don't give up moment thing about civilian operations man is they don't buddy line up I, I, nev- I never did that while I was, I got my <clears throat> diving license early too. And uh, they don't do that. I guess because they think they're diving in the daytime that you can't get turned around. Perfect example right there. And I, I've been in that same water. I came up out of it with the jellyfish around my regulator. But, I mean, so that, when, when those <laughs> things are in, they're in there, man. You just can't get, oh, dog, I forgot about that part. But it doesn't matter since when, when you jump into the water, it doesn't matter if you're 12, 20, or 45 because it's a completely different environment than what we were born into. And, but humans are the only species you can throw in the water, a baby, and they won't drown. But if you're not trained in, in the capacity of how to navigate, move, and just be fluid in it, then it doesn't matter what age you are. It's going to go exactly like that. You know, people get in those boat wrecks and hang out there forever just because of the cardinal bearings off once you snatch the uh, land away from you. And it can literally be just like he said on the other horizon. And I've done that flutter kick too, the, 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 the flutter kick for freedom where you're trying to kick up as far as you can to get some eyeline on it. And it's just funny because the first time you go up, you don't see it, you go down and you come up even higher. I mean, it's almost where your feet are on the top of that water looking for the land <laughs> or somebody. Oh, yeah. But uh, that... Yeah. I, it doesn't it doesn't even matter. As soon as we go in the water, the teams, man, you're strapped to your buddy. Period. You ain't going anywhere or out of a distance because the length of that rope is probably the length of your eye line underwater at any given time. Especially if you're close to the bottom, they start kicking up the dirt, and when the fish come around and, and catch your attention, it's almost like a test to see if you'll hey follow me. You yeah, know what I'm about? totally. Because they got that down, we don't. 
your your compass is off underwater. Oh, yeah. For sure. Completely off. One of the things, Clint, that I'm hearing the most important for you was this pivotal moment in your childhood where you all of a sudden, for the first time, were was able to experience fear in a way that it changed you. Can you talk about taking that experience and how it shaped the direction that you wanted to go as an adult? And because obviously, you know, you look at 21 years in the teams and doing the stuff that you do now, which is essentially helping people to manage their fear, to embrace it, if you will, to utilize it in under crisis or duress, not to shatter emotionally. So can you talk about taking that experience and where it directed you as a young man and where it took you in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was, there was some paralleling experiences that took me down that path. One was, you know, I, I think like all of us, I had a, uh, I, I'm, I was definitely lured by risk. I like, I like it. I like taking risks. I, um, you know, and it, it has certainly manifested from my professional life into my personal life. And you take risks in your personal life, you know, and, you know, I ended up divorced. I'm not exactly the greatest guy on the planet, but uh, you know, and, and certainly what makes a, what makes a good, you know, soldier doesn't necessarily make a good, you know, guy here in the uh, civilian world. But with all that, I mean, that's the path, right? I mean, for me overseas, growing up in that culture, you know, call me prejudice, call me racist. I don't care. Growing up there and having that experience as a kid and being treated the way that we were treated, I grew up, you know, uttering under my breath and mumbling to myself as from, from eight years old up that I'm going to come back and kill these people someday. And it, it lived with me to the point, you know, to where when you do get to be an adult and you get back to America and you've got all these opportunities, my opportunity you know, um, I still stuck to what, uh, was ingrained in me when I was a kid. And I, and I tell people this for a reason. It's not to single myself out as some racist idiot or an adult that can't see that, Oh, that's a different culture and it belongs to them. And it, you can't judge them by it. And which, when you become an adult, you realize, realize all that, that, Hey, what's over there is theirs. Just don't let it come here. You know, I don't agree with it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's just what they've known for centuries and we were the visitors in their country. So, you know, I can't, you know, I may not like it, but it's their world. Um, and so as you grow up, you realize that, but when you talk about and getting off a little bit of a tangent, but when you talk about, you know, terrorism, I always relate it, you know, we roll, we, we've rolled into a lot of places now and those little kids, looking at us, I remember looking at those kids and I saw myself in them because I felt like, I felt like, you know, um, you know, growing up with that kind of hatred, you know, if you think like terrorism is going away anytime soon, it's like all those kids that we rolled in on are now, you know, war fighting age. Um, and they've got that same passion. The difference is they don't have other opportunities to choose from. You know, I can come back to the United States. I can, you know, do whatever I want, become a doctor, become this, become that. And I still stuck to a certain path and it's no different than what those kids are going to do too. Um, and so, but anyway, long story short. So that was one piece that led me to my career was growing up over there and a little bit of that immature hatred that I had early on. 
Um, and then with that was, you know, taking the risk and, um, and, you know, sometimes you take risks and you win and sometimes you lose and, you know, it's, uh, we all do it. You gamble a little bit and then you learn from it. And hopefully when you learn from it, you apply it to the next, uh, next situation and become more and more successful. So, you know, then now getting to the core of your question on helping others, it's like, yeah, that path was a little, not exactly what people would think it would be, you know, here's this, you know, kid based on hatred became a seal, but it is what it is. And I, I can't really deny it. Um, but at the same time, you know, doing 20 years of now for the, doing a lot of stuff for the greater good, but even more so having that opportunity to hang out with the great guys, you know, you love each other, you hate each other, but that's, you know, that's called family. And, um, you know, and, and all of that combined then makes you go, all right, well, how can I, you know, continue this on in some form or fashion? I remember pre nine 11, you know, you get to that point when it's time to reenlist and you're scratching your head going, do I really want to stay here? Or don't want to get out. Well, if I get out, what the hell is there to do for, you know, a seal? Mm-hmm. And there wasn't much. Um, but as, as our experience grew overseas and, you know, <clears throat> my wake up call was, you know, showing up to USS Cole and then, and of course, 9-11 and everything else that transpired after that, um, then it, your, your passion and everything definitely changes. Uh, and there's ex- every experience that you gain over there kind of shifts you a little bit, um, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, but it changes who you are and your goals in life. And so I knew I was getting about, you know, two or three, at, two, two or three years out from retirement. I knew that I wanted to take at least some of the lessons learned apply it more into the civilian world that, you know, give people, you know, in the corporate world when I'm doing, you know, escape the wolf stuff, which is like, you know, my crisis management company, that's all called best practices and protocol and, you know, the policies in which people drill under or the, what they do and it's time to react to any kind of crisis. And then on the civilian side is, you know, as you guys know, hundred deadly skills, which is really just best practices for the average person. So they can defeat whatever that crisis is that comes in that comes their way. And, um, and I just want to, you know, continue that path, um, staying in my lane of crisis management where I'm just giving people the skills they need to win. And, uh, the, and the big piece is, you know, m- most, you know, I get most of the calls for is anything active shooter related. It's like, Hey, my, I say it over and over just because he's got a gun does not mean he has the advantage. And, um, and I try to get people to understand that and start living it a little bit and start reacting. You know, you know, there was an FBI study done years ago that when, when during the, uh, Mumbai attacks and the Americans that were in one of the, the more Western hotels, they asked them like, what were you, what did you think your options were? And it was either die or be rescued. Mm. Um, and so ever since, you know, seeing that and hearing it and then all the other events that you hear about where people would become victims, I was like, fuck that, man. I want people to be more self rescue oriented. I want them to be more self, be self reliant, um, rely on yourself you rely on knowledge, experience, and gut instinct and know that you can win. It's not over just because the guy's got a gun. He cannot cover his six 24-7 while he's shooting. He, he, his flanks are wide open. He's got tunnel vision. He's got adrenaline going. He probably doesn't even see you because he's focused on some other target. There's plenty of opportunities for you to take that fucker out. You just have to do it. And uh, 
So that's kind of what I push, push, push so hard on now. And it's not just active CR. I just use that as an example because it's so prevalent these days, but, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's really it. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's probably more than you want to know about me, but that's, that's kind of it. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, what I'm hearing is, you know, this progression of, of, of under the understanding of fear, right? The, 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 the acknowledgement that we're more afraid to take risks because we lack the skills um, in order to mitigate that risk in a way where, you know, we, we're not able to act or experience. What I want to, you, and you what, just kind of change a little bit toward its relevance with how you're parenting now. You're, you were, you know, you admittedly, as, 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 as was I, you know, ingrained in a different mindset because of the job that it distracted you from being a, 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 a present spouse, but that changed in you and you wanted to become where your daughter was the number one priority. What are you teaching her about fear and what are you teaching her about risk and the ask, you know, seeking risk out, uh, hatred, all of these things that were ignition points for you towards this life path you chose. What are you teaching your daughter now? Yeah, it's a, I, you know, I seeing a different, you know, note now, you know, she'll, she'll say, Oh, I, I hate going to uh, practice. I'm like, hate is a strong word. Anytime <laughs> she says the word hate and a lot of teenagers <laughs> use that word all the time and they don't, they have no idea that it is a powerful and it's a strong word. So I'm always correcting her on that. Like you don't hate it. You don't need to say hate. There's no such thing as, you know, especially when it comes to training, you know, she's a, you know, she's a competitive cheerleader. So it's like they train constantly, but, um, it's, uh, that's, that's probably the number one thing is I don't want her, you know, thinking or looking at anything the way that I did. Um, you know, it was a different circumstance, you know, I was, you know, for me, I was getting beat up by 20, 30 year old, Saudi men on a regular basis, just because I was a Westerner, me, my, and my Canadian and British friends. But, you know, it's, um, there is a lot of other things going on that bred that little bit of hatred. And of course, once you become an adult, you go, all right, you know, it's just, that was just the way it was then, you know, <laughs> that was just the way those, that's the way it was there. And it's not that way here. We, we, we've got it made, um, here and these kids have it made. So I make sure that she, um, respects everything that she's, uh, got going on. And I, and I do tell her a lot of, uh, um, stories that I, that I think relate, you know, the best way to relate to a child is you got to kind of almost go back in your database and pull out those significant moments when you were a kid and, and then kind of communicate it in a way that where they get it, you know, if you do the adult route, it doesn't always work. Um, but respecting fear you know we we talk about facing it you know for her her challenges these days are nothing like you know what i experienced when i was a kid but it and i'm not saying i had it bad it was just dealing with you know a bunch of pricks really <laughs> so <laughs> she doesn't have to deal with any of that but it's uh her fears are like if she's gotta you know go from doing a full to adding a twist to it and, you know, and running the, running down the, uh, the tramp to, you know, when you first start into a big sponge pit, you know, it's like, okay, that's her fear is like how to the body mechanics and afraid that she's going to, you know, basically not stick it the right way and end up, you know, either injuring herself or, 
or just the frustration of not getting it the first time or the second time or the third time. And, um, but we talk a lot about, you know, the, those at a macro level, like, you know, you have to respect fear. You, you, it's good that it's always there because that's what keeps you in check with whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, and some of that goes over her head, but I feel like, you know, redundancy is a good thing when it comes to raising kids. You know, you just keep yeah. saying it, you know, they'll get it. They're, they're going to have that moment when the light bulb goes off and they're going to remember, Oh, that's right. That's what dad said. Now I get it. Um, and that's kind of the goal, right? Is you just keep you know, reinforcing. That's why I always tell, I hate a strong word. You don't need to say hate because I hate getting up early. I hate doing that. It's like, just switch it, switch it to, you know, I, I really don't like it <laughs> or something else. Right. But, right. You know, yeah, it comes out, you know, it's a, it's daily, right? It comes out all the time when you're, you know, in the full-time dad mode and, you know, and I, uh, you just got to just stay on top of it. And I always, I always tell people, you know, we're not raising kids, we're raising adults. And I think some parents forget that, that they, you're raising an adult, you know, but they kind of get stuck in the mindset of that they're raising children. <clears throat> I'd do the same thing and get off the level of when you're trying to explain something or you're correct, the team guy way to do it. You know, you're straight up front forward because you don't have time to church yeah. it up. And when, if you, you know, I went back into my mental Rolodex too when I was that age. And ex- <laughs> if you try to explain in a, an adult manner down to the kid, they just see that as the adult and, and it shuts them down or the fear or whatever it is. But if you're down, explain it on their level. Then it, it, you know it absolutely helps. I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. I mean, I, my dad always says, "Like I ain't, your fr- I'm not your friend. I'm your father." And I never understood that till I became one. And reason being because we, we do a lot of dumb stuff with our friends. I, I mean, like I, if we're doing something, I'm gonna be doing it. And, <laughs> I mean, sometimes my kids will do something, be like, "Hey, man, that was awesome. Don't ever do it again." All right, and this is the reason that we were talking about the dishwasher the other day. If they load the dishwasher a certain way, it's not working. Then you'd be like, "Hey, man, look." I, this is exactly how I load it too, but apparently it messes something up. So let's break this instruction book out and learn. This is how I think we should do it. What do you think? And you give them the opportunity to make the decision the right way in front of you. And then they are teaching you. That's kind of how I had to do it. I was like, and then I, I make this to where they understand to where they, it looks like they're teaching me something. So I'm not coming down on them. And because of the way we are, man, the way we have to, <laughs> medic route especially, is like, you're going to do this right now. And it's boom, 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 boom. And um, stepping away from that, uh, absolutely. That's a great part about kids, man. They allow us to come out of that, to to pull away from that last part. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, man. It's uh, it's fun too. You know, you're you're trying to influence in a positive manner on a regular basis, and not you know, letting your uh, <laughs> amateur team guy sack come out in front of them too much, and then uh, you know, hoping they come out. I think most team guy kids are like pretty level level-minded level kids and they they get it early on and uh, my daughter's basically a phd in adulthood at this point learning from my, <laughs> all, my all my mistakes you know especially in divorce world man it's yeah i'm seven years in divorce world and and she sees me you know make all kinds of mistakes and uh and then we talk about it and you know she's uh she's on my we're on a team together you know and we're just we're a package unit, and we're just getting through it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. One of, one of the great challenges, I think, that a lot of, of, of guys that have served in the capacity with which we've served is making the transition into um, 
you know, into that civilian sector and to take these, these in our minds, very clear under, you know, these clear ideas or concepts of how we interpret fear, how we interpret risk mitigation, all these things. But what I've seen across the board is how challenging it is to teach those things to civilians based on, you know, the, the, the varieties of, you know, good or bad, how they've been influenced based on their, you know, the cultural and, or, or, you know, there's, you know, their regional or national cultural influence or organizational cultural influence. What are you, how do you best do that with the people you're working with? What do you, how do you get down to not get down? How do you better associate uh, your knowledge with how they learn and perceive fear? That's a good one. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, gain a lot of ground knowing your audience. And so I feel like, and, and sometimes that isn't because I'm personally, I'm not, you know, doing a ton of research all the time. I've learned to be better about researching beforehand. Um, some of it's through trial and error where you can just use the a word and all of a sudden you've just lost them. And mm-hmm. well, it can be for the good, you know, for the good or for the bad one way or another, but you can, you know, use one word that, you know, all of us on the phone thinks it's a use and suddenly it doesn't. But I think, um, one, no audience and two, specifically what you're asking towards, you know, communicating to them about fear in the civilian sector. I mean, I have the advantage of, you know, in the crisis management world to just use current events that's happening, you know, out in the civilian world, um, whether it is the, that shooting or, you know, um, you know, there's wildfires or any of the natural disaster, man-made, valuable um, medical events, any of that kind of stuff. It's it's definitely easier for me to relate to them because they're reading and hearing about it all the time. Um, but when it comes to facing it, um, I, I try to express to them that you you have to calibrate, you have to sensitize your mind to whatever it is you fear. And for what I teach, it's all about what if in your environment. You know, whether it's as a family and you're sitting at the dinner table and you, hey, if, if this happened right now, what would we all do? And you turn into a conversation. And when, what, what happens is when you talk about it and everybody starts thinking about it, then it certainly makes it a lot easier to act out whatever it was you discussed, that plan, um, when something bad happens or when that fear comes along now you already have some of the decisions already made because I think we all know the last thing you want to do is start wondering or making decisions uh, during that fear process. You want to already kind of know what you're going to do and just act it out. It would be ideal. Um, So I tell people all the time, you got to sensitize yourself through, you know, knowledge, um, experience and instinct and, you know, mentally run through scenarios in your mind on a regular basis and walk through what you would do and talk about it with colleagues, your family, whether it is that active shooter or only that tornado coming down the road in 30 seconds. It's, uh, it, you have to at least have, you know, sensitized yourself to it 
so that you can react a lot better. And then all of a sudden, that fear, you're still, you still have it, but you're controlling it because your actions kind of put it to the wayside. But it also keeps your actions in check, keeps your plan in check to ensure that you're truly being responsible and safe and secure um, with the decisions that you've already made ahead of time. Right on. That rings very true with what uh, we had Tony LaRusso on talking about leadership and a component of being a leader. And in the context of what we're talking about, maybe you're the leader of your family, leader in a work environment, something like that. And the value of a leader being someone who is already, it's not just making the decision in the crisis point. It's prior to that in the preparation um, before reaching that of knowing what to do and having thought through that and knowing that when A happens, B is going to be the, you know, the course of events. So that really rings true. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, I mean, you'd be surprised. Like, I think we all understand the importance of training and how it, you know, becomes muscle memory. And then, you know, then once you get overseas or wherever you hopefully, uh, it keeps everything in check, but you know, the civilian sector doesn't have, you know, the ability to constantly be training like the way we were. So the, the, the next best thing is just mentally working through those, those obstacles or potential uh, crises um, on, a, on a regular basis. When I say regular, I mean, you're talking to, for me to think through what I would do when I get into my hotel room or when I go into a restaurant or, you know, you're talking seconds and it mm-hmm. makes, it makes a world of difference um, when some, when the element of surprise, uh, you know, pops up. For sure. Well, I, when I hear you talk, Clint, I, I'm, you know, for us, it's second nature, right? And, and what's interesting, it, it becomes a a natural, uh, progression of our own stress inoculation through being able to address these core situations and manage fear and to where we can effectively engage in, in whatever mission we put in front of us. But when you take a step back as a civilian, they look and hear us talk about it and they're going to look at you and say, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. I don't want to, I don't want to, that's not my world. That's not my life. I can't relate. Now, the name of your new book is The Right Kind of Crazy. Can you help (laughs) us, uh, you know. There's the jeopardy of being the tinfoil hat guy. uh, Yeah, right. Can, yeah, exactly. The wrong kind of crazy. Right. <laughs> well, I, I've got a great story about a dude uh, in the teams who used to wear tinfoil hats and, and stuff, but that's a whole nother story. But you, uh, can you help <laughs> us understand what that means and why you wanted to be labeled like that in, in this new book you're putting out there? Yeah, that thing is, uh, it's still in the review process, um, which is I don't know if you guys, it's a painful, painful process because mm. the, the government puts you on their clock and, uh, there's no, there's no speed or hastiness with any of it, which is, uh, frustrating. But, um, yeah, it, that right kind of crazy really is, uh, <clears throat> I kind of alluded to it a little earlier. It's, uh, you know, what makes up, um, sometimes a, a, a great guy for overseas, um, may not be the what you think is the greatest guy, you know, back home. And I've noticed with a lot of, um, whether it's memoirs or anything that relates to our community, you know, we, we've been put on this pedestal. Um, and so right kind of crazy really is just humanizing, um, a little bit of me, 
And yeah, I'm, I was, a you know, did 21 years and I'm not trying to, um, it's not really about the community. It's more about bad decisions and the lessons I've learned from it. And there are some crazy stories, uh, both that are dark and twisted. And then at the same time, you know, surface level funny. Um, but really it was, you know, just letting people know that they're, you know, like someone like me who is a total underdog, um, the underlying, there's several underlying themes, but being an underdog and, you know, and then just making it happen. Um, and then also more of the, the, the reality of things. And, uh, I tried to <clears throat> do something unique where, you know, you have to give up a little bit about, you know, your seal life, but I tried to keep that minimal to get to like the juicy stories that uh, we've all lived and breathed that are, that are funny and, and some that are sad. Um, but really just to show that, uh, we're all, we're all humans. We're not superheroes and, uh, and we're all just, uh, you know, figuring it out as we go sometimes. And, and we're trying to do, uh, some of us are doing it for economic reasons. Some of us do it because we got a higher level of patriotism and, but combined a whole bunch of guys like that can, uh, do a whole lot of good things, no matter how screwed up each individual is <laughs> so that's that's pretty much it man it's uh i think i think even um you know we get shunned for being book writers and uh you know i'm uh, i'm certainly on the you know probably on somebody's black ball list but you know at the end of the day it's uh i'm hoping to you know put out a little bit of that that humanity uh and reality instead of uh you know the other stuff <clears throat> Uh, well, people have been putting out books about war and warfare since we started war and warfare. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, how, that's how the younger know. guys get into the into the program and into the military is they read the stories of the guy before them. It's in, incumbent upon you to do that. Yeah. And, I mean, normally back in the day, it was the admirals and generals and when the high ups would get out and they would, this is the book on military. But then you, you, know, you got the ground pounders because our stories are just mm-hmm. unbelievable, man. The, when the generals, the admirals stopped deploying into the, into the field, well, then they took that away from them and they were the ones on the front line. And when we get out, I mean, I was the first one to have to do yeah, that. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, luckily, I was protected <laughs> on high ground, and it was I, mm-hmm. all I had to do was be the face guy. So, I, um, but that was kind of one of the deals. My, my part was I went through this. So when the guys were getting out of, they ask or need anything, I'd push them in the right direction. So it's uh, it's don't, yeah. man, you know the deal with the everyone talks smack about you in some capacity. I let you know that you're doing something. Right, good, bad, or indifferent, exactly. man. If, you, if you're doing yeah. the right thing and you're helping people, it's not one of those deals where I'm the best I, there was. And well, if you, you're hearing somebody say all that, and they probably had a horrible career, <laughs> right? Because if sure, you're yeah. right neck it deep in the middle of it, you understand you ain't the best at anything. You just you're a team player, That's and right. you're, you bring your chaos, your form of it, into the circle, and together we make that ring. And that's why we're able to do the things that we do because at any time and any capacity, one of us can handle the situation uh, that's in front of us. And that, that brings the levity yeah. to, to all of us. Well, no, that's a good point. It's like I, I definitely focused on how I feel like if, you're, if you've always feel like the new guy, then you're, you're doing okay. And I certainly hmm. always felt like the new guy no matter where I was or what I was doing. And I, and I think it's a good way 
too, personally, just to keep yourself in check, your ego in check, all that shit, because no one's got time for that crap. Hmm. We, we America loves the underdog, and I think a lot of Americans can can really uh, look at their situations and whatever they might be as as hey, I'm in this underdog situation. There's a lot of things around me that are outside of my control that you know are are keeping me locked into this one pathway where I'm not gonna you know learn how to take risk and, and address fear in a way. Can you describe why you label yourself as an underdog and what the underdog mindset can ultimately bring to life if you learn how to take greater risk? Um, yeah, I mean, it goes back. The underdog piece, I think, I was, I was your typical skinny little runt. Right. I was, I played football. I say I quote unquote played football at a super five, a school in Plano, right. Where high school football is everything in this state, as you guys know. Um, but I sucked and I sat on the bench most of the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I definitely didn't run fast enough. I sure as hell wasn't big, big enough. So, but I was on the team, which was, which was, you know, for me, okay, that's cool. But at the end of the day, I, uh, yeah, physically, what most people think um, is a is a seal is this you know is equivalent to a linebacker like they all we all know that right I mean mm-hmm. everyone has this vision of what they think a seal should look like um, until they meet some and they realize we come in all sizes shapes and forms so I'm certainly one of those that you know especially you know coming out of high school and then going into college and and joining you know, and then joining the Navy um, I certainly had a my fair amount of people, you know, my closest friends and probably hell my family were like, there's no way he's going to make that. There's no way <laughs> the guy, you know, he's just, he's just not, doesn't look like the part, but you realize, you know, when you're standing, you know, cold, wet and sandy very quickly that it's not about size at all. It's not about, um, much of anything other than your passion, your drive, your heart. And if it's in there, uh, then you're going to win. And you're going to do whatever it takes to win. And I think that's part of being the underdog. And when you know that you've got everyone looking at you, like there's no way you're going to make it. It's just, you you can let that push you down or you can embrace it and take all that energy away from them and use it for yourself and uh, you know, drive to the top. And then once that train leaves the station, then you're fucking long gone and people are going, holy shit that guy actually did that and he actually <laughs> pulled it off and he's, hmm. you know, and it's, uh, and it's, and it becomes, it becomes a, for me, it became a natural, you know, fuel for, from then they're on, they're on. Like, tell me I cannot do it. Look at me like I can't do it. And I will do everything I got to prove you wrong and, uh, and, and not just do it, but try and do it, you know, more successful than the next or whatever. But, and then the reality is, is when you look at the, if you put all that, okay, I'm going to do it better than anybody else. If you actually put that on a scale, I'm fucking mid pack sometimes in the goon squad. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, but that my level of putting out doesn't always mean I'm at the top. It just means I'm getting through it. And, um, it's my, it's my form of success, not necessarily what other, everyone else would label like this great achievement or anything. So, um, yeah, I think that's it in a nutshell. That's the great thing about buds, man. Every evolution is designed for you to fail. 
not only that, after you fail, you're going to get beat for it. And then they're like, hey, you want to quit? You're like, no, I want more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, until oh, it clicks yeah. in our head that it doesn't matter what the situation is, we're going to go into it with the understanding that we're probably going to fail, but we're going to go out trying. And uh, I'm a goon squad, that's how I... <laughs> That's how I knew I was valuable, man, because they always started the goon squad where I was. You didn't, you didn't want to be behind me, right? <laughs> yeah. At all. Yeah, I was At, always right around there, too, man. Yeah, man. No, I, I always was. <laughs> and man, then they started getting levels like A, B, and C, so you had to graduate in the goon squad to the one above it before you get back in the lineup. And I was like... <laughs> Bro, do not be back here with me. <laughs> I'm rare security for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely a bunch of us that uh, fall into that category. But, you know, the, the tell me I can't and I'll show you otherwise. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole That's the whole concept. That's what they do the whole time. Not only do you hear from your friends, your family, yeah. and the recruiters, when you get in, then you've got a frogman standing in front of you telling you, hey, man, you ain't going to make it. I, think, I, I yeah I know I'll, I'll probably quit tomorrow, but we'll just wait to see what happens. And you can f- throw that off. And when people are like, oh, you don't look like a steel. We look like everything. Snatch one guy from all walks of life and throw him into one kind of unit. That's what you've created. And I, I always thought that too. The first guy I saw, man, he he was uh, a bodybuilder looking guy. Like oh, that guy's he's definitely huge. Gonna, definitely he's gonna, gonna make, make it. it. Yeah, uh, right. Day one, week one, like 10 minutes in, ding, he, he's ding, done, man. Ding, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cramping. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, before yeah. we wrap it up, Clint, and, and thank you for just the, the insight into all of these things. Well, if, if, if in, in order for our listeners, one of the, you know, that are currently in the goon squad, right? Whatever that may be for themselves. And, <laughs> Most of the time, we, we, it's self-imposed, right? And uh, the negatives speak within our own minds. What, what, are, what are some little pieces of, of inf, you know, I don't know, insight or wisdom that people can start doing or telling themselves to start moving out of the goon squad, to start getting back in where they can take great risks that enables them to explore the world in a safe way with uh, a, a great ability to embrace their fear you know it's i think number one I, I, you know you always hear about facing your fear i think there's something in that you uh you know take your top three fears that that are um realistic and you know make the effort to face them and see what it really feels like, what it really looks like, what it really tastes like. And I think most of the time people, I know I've realized, you know, over time that, you know, it goes back to the anticipation of death is worse than death itself. (laughs) And we've all lived that where it's like, Hey, what I thought was going to be really, really fucked up and scary turns out to be not so bad after all. We tend to build things up in our mind and we make it a lot more than what it should be. And so if you just get out there and you give it a shot, face it, whatever that is, then you'll realize that it really wasn't that big a deal after all. Or if it is a big deal, it's probably not as extreme as you made it out to be in your mind. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, once again, kind of reiterating is like that, that mental walkthroughs, you know, that dirt diving, like what we call it, of what you're going to do, how you would react, the things that you face in life walk through them on a regular basis to where you're, you know, transitioning that fear into just something a little more 
real that can then translate later into action. And, uh, um, and you know, we, we spend a lot of time on our phones, um, instead of doing social media, maybe go, you know, read up on the things that, you know, that knowledge piece and the ability to reach into different communities these days and learn from others based on whatever those fears are. Um, it, it, it does wonders for a lot of folks. I mean, I, I, I look at the more, the bigger fears, like imagine being diagnosed with something like cancer and then not knowing what the hell your, uh, the rest of your life looks like. But if it wasn't for communities of survivors, then, you know, people would just circle the drain that much faster as, as us Mm. medics know, you know, it's like, we're like goats, right? You put a goat by itself (laughs) that's sick, it will die. But if you put a goat in a pen that's surrounded by other goats and other pens, then he lives because they are social animals. Um, so, hmm. you know, whatever fears you have, talk to people about it, talk it out. Um, that communication piece goes a long way. It took me a long time to figure that out, but communicate, 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 no matter what it is, no matter how embarrassing it is. Um, you know, you can, you can get through anything if you just talk about it and, uh, and there's plenty of people around you that you find out real quick that will go, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah, there's, I tried this, and it worked just fine. And all of a sudden, you get free advice, and <clears throat> whatever that was, it's, uh, it gets diffused and diluted by uh, all the other people around you that are facing the same thing. Awesome. Hmm. Well, my brother, thank you so much for the insight, man. That was just one amazing concept to, that you shared with our listeners after other. We really appreciate that. Where can people go to follow you, pay attention, learn from you, your books, everything? Give us a, an overview of, of what's going on and what you got coming, obviously, in the future, too. Sure. My, uh, really, my whole ecosystem is at ClintEmerson.com, and it's really just the three Three big things I got going on. They're all in the crisis management lane to escape the wolf, a hundred deadly skills. Like I said, escape the wolf is for corporate, you know, doing what we build policy and um, online training systems for, uh, you know, fortune 500 guys, hundred deadly skills is really the consumer level average person version of that. You guys have seen it. It's, it's, uh, it's entertaining and informative because it's illustrated, which makes it the perfect you know, survival manual for guys because they don't have to read. They can just look at pictures and learn. Mm. And then, uh, then you got super violent, interesting. violent Nomad. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> super interesting. Yeah. I pre- and, I, and, and then, of course, the brand, Violent Nomad, which is, is really just pushing self-reliance, self-rescue, you know, once again, embrace knowledge and, and any experience you can gain and follow your gut instinct and start doing things for yourself because person next to you might not help you and uh that's pretty much uh that's pretty much it clintemerson.com and uh, of course hunter deli skills and all that for social stuff <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> the reluctant educator <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like, ever wary uh, of the social media oh boy yeah you guys know it's like putting yourself out there it's taken me you know i've been retired for three years and i I actually learn from you guys like, okay, they're doing it. So I guess it's okay. <laughs> and so then I'll try something and you know, we're all learning, but this social stuff, fuck. 
Yeah, it's it's, uh, some days I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like new, it's going through buds again. Yeah. Those days when your buddy's like, yeah. what the hell am I doing yeah, here, man? Totally. <laughs> Where did well, I go wrong in life? For our, from our interpretation, you're doing it right, Clint. You're yeah, making man. a profound impact on you know the world that you're coming in contact with, and we can't thank you enough. We think you're a great representation of, of the community as well as yourself. And we feel so honored that you'd come on the show with us. Thank you, sir. No, thanks for having me. You guys are doing it right. I love the concept, everything. Never quit the team and being a part of it. So, uh, you know, once again, thanks for having me. And I always appreciate opportunities like this. You guys Absolutely, are great. Thanks for coming on. Now, Marcus, when I throw this out to you, brother, right? Rich men have money. Wealthy men have time. Do you think Clint has found that wealth in his life after what he's experienced? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in what what, what uh, that quote says. Like in the beginning, it, that's the rich man wealth, and then hopefully the wisdom part when it drops in, the time. And I, I think if you get caught up in the whole thing, that there's always more money, but eventually you're gonna have to take take some time to enjoy it. Like go out, and make a million memories, save a dollar from each, and then yeah. it back. Life's short. I mean, you want to look back on it and say I spent the entire time working to make money to see how big. My, if that's your goal, or did I, how much did I see? How much did I do? How much did I get to give back? Because that's the wealth, right? And and I think the the kind of the metaphor behind it is the uh, the wealth is in the amount of time you get to spend with people that's what makes you rich the more mm. people you're around and, and and in order to have that kind of wealth you have to put the time in right to cultivate those relationships to get out there and what i was hearing is really to, to take the risk i mean here's a guy from early on in his life you know he's taking risk he's getting out there and certainly you know i thought it was incredibly interesting that he talked about this this uh misdirected hatred that ultimately led him to be more confrontational towards his fears, which ultimately led him to a place where he's teaching his daughter, hey, hatred isn't a very healthy thing, but taking risks is. Yeah. I mean, you go out through life, you get burned on a lot of stuff. Being picked on is, is the one that I mean, stays with you. We, say we teach our kids how to dress, how to eat, wash their hands, but you don't teach them how to defend themselves in any kind of capacity. Because the biggest thing is if you can defend yourself physically, that automatically gives you the verbiage to, to do it and, uh, and keep it at that level and then back it up. The more secure you are and confident in that, the, the more secure and confident you are in almost everything. Because eventually that's what stalls everybody is the fear in some capacity. It usually happens when you're doing something with somebody else and they're competing for the same thing. And then that's when the, the dominance comes up. And at any point in time, you haven't trained yourself in those kind of capacities, man. And they have, they're going to, you know, they're going to above it. How did you make the leap from him dealing with immature hatred to going to the point he said, I'm going to come back and kill these people someday to confronting your fears and turning that into something constructive? Well, I, I think when you're surrounded by oppression of any kind, that's a scary thing. When you recognize that culture, which he was facing, the Saudi culture, anti-Americanism in the time. And I went to high school with a kid that lived in the same scenario and was picked on and beaten just like Clint was uh -huh. and created a, a, his own 
bigotry, his own uh, racism, if you will, right? I don't know if it's race, more cultural, you know, you know, hatred, I guess, is was better. Those are the words he used, you know, but at some point he was like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go and address this in a deeper way. And he chose to do it by going into the special operations community. I mean, that's a substantial step to take. Most people that are oppressed don't, you know, go out and train themselves to be these master warriors against different cultural adversity. Mm. And what I find fascinating is through his 21 years of experience at the very highest level of addressing, you know, these ideological differences, I just think it's, 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 it, he took this juvenile uh, impression of the world and launched him on this journey towards he ultimately discovered that, hey, man, you know, people, it, it, is, it, is it right or is it wrong? It's just different from the way I think, right? And I thought that's fascinating that it would propel him to go on that path. It's pretty intense. I think, yeah, I think so for sure. That was a good connection. Thanks for explaining that. I think he's another example of how a person can deal with things when they're young that are negative, but ultimately find themselves through choice or by happenstance or just the things that go through in life on a path that puts them in, that results in them being in a, in a very fortunate or positive position in life. Absolutely. You know I, I, mean? I mean, that's what Marcus was talking about. What he, you know, as you know, you, you experience the goon squad, so to speak, and that sets you up for a journey, a long-term journey of discovery. Amen. Well, Welcome to the Team Never Quit podcast, man. That was one of our, our more uh, insightful shows. I think Clint brings a, a very different approach than a lot of guys that we've had on the past. Uh, I, I really like his style. I like his tone. I think if you're a first-time listener, then, man, what a treat for you. Uh, I hope you, you pulled away. If you've coming back for more, this is exactly the type of show that you enjoy, that you look for, that you want. I mean, some real wisdom, some real how-to uh, on addressing these the very powerful concept of fear and risk and, and awareness and self-awareness, most importantly, and, and what it takes to, to prepare yourself for, you know, the, the great never-quit moments of your life. Uh, so, I, you know, if, if you enjoyed what you heard, then if you want to know more about what we do, please... Check out our website at tnqpodcast.com. Uh, we're super proud to uh, be a part of the Westwood One Podcast Network. Man, that being on their team and, abil- and our ability to, to really tap into their incredible reach of a quarter of a billion people, we're just incredibly thankful that they want to partner with us too. If you want to follow the show, all the shows are, are available on tnqpodcast.com. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, CastBox. We're streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much every other uh, podcast platform on all mobile or portable or even desktop devices. Uh, check out our new merchandise. We've got great merch out there, new shirts, new hats, the whole deal. You're going to love them. That's tnqpodcast.com. You can follow us all on social media. Uh, for the show at TNQ Podcast, for Team Never Quit at Team Never Quit, Marcus at Marcus Luttrell, the Wizard at the Wizard TNQ, and me at Team Frog Logic. But one of our favorite parts of 
our site by far is this community that has grown. Uh, uh, listeners that have been had the courage and the never quit mindset to share their incredible experiences or experiences of people that care most about people they love to share with our community. And we've got hundreds of these stories posted now. Uh, and we're so, we're so, so grateful for everybody's contribution. Thank you so much. This is what Marcus's vision was that this, this collective community could come together and share with one another their pain, their suffering, but also their ability to face the obstacles of love, of life, overcome uh, adversity, and to share their never-quit story. And we've got one today for you. This is from Wayne. Before I get into my story, I want to thank you guys for the motivating guests you have on. I've listened to them all within a week. I also love the (laughs) mad 20 minutes. I've had many never quit stories, but I might as well share the earliest one. I grew up extremely poor. You know the saying that we grew up poor, but didn't know it. Well, we knew it. This was the result of my, this was the result of my Vietnam vet dad's alcohol problem. He was drunk daily and could be very verbally abusive. My sister and I, being the oldest, took the brunt of it. Of our family of six, lived in a two-bedroom trailer. I ate my share of potted meat sandwiches, and there were plenty of New York winter nights that we ran out of kerosene for our furnace, and us four kids would huddle in one bed to stay warm. In the summers, I would work with dad some days on his trash route, and I have had been in more dive bars before I turned 18 than I have since. Being a Marine, that's probably not true, but I was, more, I was in more than my share of them. We moved out and back in a few, we moved out and back in a few times until mine finally had enough, and they divorced when I was 16. In situations like this one, I grew up in the situations like this one I grew up in, it's easy to give up, blame your upbringing, and follow the same road your parents did. My never quit moment was when I decided I didn't want the same life I grew up in. We all have to make our own choices and own them. I have heard other people say that the American dream is dead. I don't buy it. We all have our own dream. And mine was to have a family, own the house with a white picket fence, and not give up on my wife and kids. My siblings didn't quit either. Of the four of us, three say, of the four of us, three served in the military. My sister did five years in the army, and my brother and I are and my brother and I are retired Marines. I guess I did pretty good on my dream. Also, my wife and I have been married twenty nine years. My daughter just finished her junior year in college, and my Marine son will be pinning on his captain's bars in September. It hasn't come without struggles. When my daughter was a junior in high school, when I saw the light at the end of the tunnel preparing to be an umpty nester with my mortgage almost paid off, I thought I would be able to afford and build the man cave and buy the Jeep Rubicon I've always wanted. It was then our lives took a big left turn. I guess we had done so well at parenting, mostly my wife, that God decided we need to fight for custody 
of our seven-year-old nephew and five-year-old niece. They were my brother-in-law's kids, and social services took them from their dysfunctional home and put them with us. We thought our next phase in life was to work with vets in need and doing mission trips, but instead look for a bigger house with a new mortgage and put everything on hold. It took me longer than my wife to adjust, but that's what a family is supposed to do. Step up for each other. I guess the man, I guess the man cave can wait. Quitting can't be an option. Thanks for giving us a forum to share our stories. The picture I uploaded is my brother, my son, and myself. I'm on the far right. We have the honor of giving him his first salute the day this was taken. Semper Fry, brothers. Wow, Wayne, that's all. That's awesome, man. And you're right. It's about family. It's about friends. It's about doing the right thing. It's about believing that the American dream still is intact at every level. Uh, I'm super proud for your writing in, Wayne. I have no doubt your story and your your service will resonate with hundreds, if not thousands, of our of our listeners and the members of our team. Thank you. I also want to thank Clint, man, man, your service to this country is nothing short of exceptional. And the journey that you were on from a kid has proven itself to be a powerful influence on countless scores of people that you come in contact with. Thank you. I want to thank God. I want to thank Christ. I want to thank Jonna, my girls, my family, my friends, my experiences around the world and my experiences in the teams. Uh, thank you guys for doing this with me. And uh, most importantly, thanks to the listeners. Yeah, man. Good job, Maureen. I mean, good job. Never, they always say, hey, once a Marine, always a Marine. Sometimes when you get away from the core, you, that can, I guess it can hide itself. But when you get in those spots where you need to run out, man, that's when your family becomes your core and you're the Marine in there and just never forget that. And good job, man. It's, it's Just never quit. Just keep going. Clint, good job on transitioning out and, and uh, making a life for yourself. I know, man, you're doing a great job. And uh, it's, it can be tough, man, stepping away and then figuring out your own route because of the team environment. But the best way to learn how to be a teacher is to have kids, right? And just putting it down on them and just because you can't ever quit on them at all and just take all of that and out to, that gives you the perspective from what we were in the teams to the love component right just because you with, with your kids you got to keep that away from them that bad part so thanks to everybody for coming back and bringing us back man I, we can't even put into words how much you guys mean to us and how much fun we have doing this it truly is a blessing so Thank the Holy Family for putting us down here and allowing us to do this. Thanks for my family for uh, loving me and giving me a place. And again, you guys, thanks for coming back, man. Uh, we truly love you. God bless. I'm out. I'm out. Never quit. Team never quit. Team never quit.